This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. Who labor, those who work, who make our society possible. And I want us today to meditate on our work, on our labor, not just what happens on Sunday, but the worship that we express and the other six days of the week, which are just as important to God as Sunday is. Now, we're going to turn to this rather strange and disturbing book of Ecclesiastes and just meditate on a series of texts this afternoon. So let's begin in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, the first three verses. Listen to the word of God. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Jumping ahead to chapter 2, verse 4, the teacher writes, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself on the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself. Nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Jumping to verse 17. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all that they own to another who has not toiled for it. This, too, is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This, too, is meaningless. Well, we've chosen a gray and depressing text for a gray and depressing day because the author of Ecclesiastes is merciless. He's not some comforting Sunday school teacher who tells you that life is nice and cozy and predictable. He brutally tears away the pretensions and the illusions that shield us from facing the absurdity of life. Life is not neat 
and tidy, whatever many people, including many religious people, would have us believe. The writer of this book, who takes on the persona of Solomon, who calls himself the teacher, he is a kind of philosophy professor who is not talking as a mere academic, but someone who has lived a long life and carefully tested everything and who is speaking out of his own experience, the evidence of his own life in a difficult world. And the teacher is a man who calls things as he sees them, disturbing as they might be. And he's willing to unsettle us and to make us deeply uncomfortable. It's honestly surprising that this book was included in the canon of Scripture, and I can only attribute that to the guidance of the Holy Spirit because this book seems to work against and challenge even many other truths of the Old Testament and of human wisdom. And what makes life meaningless, what the teacher goes back to again and again through these chapters, is the brutal and inevitable fact of death. Death which mocks all human ambition, death which comes to us all, rich and poor, wise and foolish, righteous and unrighteous. And that's why, again and again, as the teacher surveys one aspect of life after another, his verdict is meaningless, meaningless, vanity of vanities, as the old King James Version had it. Life is pointless. It is absurd. It's a breath, a vapor. Nothing can give permanent satisfaction, even though it can give some joy in the moment. Life eludes our mastery. It is beyond our control and even beyond our comprehension. How can life have meaning if it is an endlessly repeating cycle? All streams flow into the sea, he writes in chapter 1, yet the sea is never full. Round and around we go to the place the streams come from. There they return again. All things are wearisome more than one can say. And that's true of our work as well. One of my very first jobs was working at Burnaby Lake Greenhouses. I was really working. That was anything since then, sitting at a desk in front of a computer, is not work in comparison to that job. And one of my coworkers was a guy from Serbia. He did teach me one Serbian phrase, get to work or I'll break your kneecaps, which I've forgotten, unfortunately. Could have come in useful at times. But he told us that in the communist days in Yugoslavia, one way they would break the will of their political prisoners was to have them spend, spend months digging a giant hole. And when the hole was finally done, they would point to the pile of dirt and command them to fill the hole in again. And that is what work is kind of like for all of us. And the whole book actually raises disturbing questions about the value of human work. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? The business of life consumes us. We're stressed and overworked and exhausted. And in the end, 
when we sum everything up, there appears to be no dividend for our labors, and the total reward is zero. What is the point of all this exhausting toil? And it's not as though the teacher hadn't tried. I undertook great projects. We read in chapter two, in chapter two houses and vineyards, collecting slaves and flock and treasure. And it makes us think of King Solomon's massive building projects described in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Enormous public works projects that involve negotiating treaties and organizing tens of thousands of skilled craftsmen and unskilled laborers, collecting taxes and tributes, and making these projects rise out of the ground. And King Solomon enjoyed work at the very highest level. This is not the mindless toil of some functionary at the bottom, but what we would all consider, yes, demanding, but very rewarding work, work that would seem to be both deeply pleasurable and rewarding. And the teacher immersed himself fully in his projects. He gave himself to his work entirely, and he relished it. My heart took delight in all of my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. It's the pleasure of what the author Cal Newport calls deep work. The joy we experience time, time, from time to time of being completely absorbed in the task before us. We get in this flow state. We're totally in the zone. We don't want to even break for coffee or lunch. We're depressed when 5 o'clock comes around. It's that experience, all too rare, where the joy of work is its own reward. And the teacher experienced that pleasure. But is that, is that really enough? That's what the teacher wondered as he lay awake at night, staring at the ceiling, forcing himself to answer the hard question. Was my work actually meaningful? Did I truly build something of enduring value? Yes, it did bring temporary benefit to me and to others. But did I actually create something that is going to last? And when I surveyed all that my hands had done and all that I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. It's this depressing realization that our efforts have no lasting effects. All of us hope to make some kind of impact, but the brutal reality is that everything we achieve is ultimately going to slip away. Here's why. Because death is coming for the wise just as certainly as for the fool. And as the teacher will remind us in chapter 9, for the living, know that they will die. This is the advantage the living have. We are conscious and we are aware of our impending death. But the dead know nothing. They have no further reward and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. 
death is coming for us all. We're all sitting on a sealed train, unable to disembark. The best we can do is to amuse or occupy ourselves until at last we, re we, we reach what is quite literally the terminal station. And when we arrive, anything that remains of our life's work is going to be taken over by someone else. And who knows whether that person will be wise or a fool. And all that we've toiled to achieve after a lifetime of grief and pain can be quickly frittered away by someone who does not understand its value. And we cannot control whether or not that happens to a lifetime of work. There's no way to prevent the fruit of thousands of hours, tens of thousands of hours from simply being flushed down the toilet. And of course, we know from history, Solomon, who was the greatest and wisest of kings, was quickly followed by a foolish son who lost half the kingdom. So here we are with our work. The tide is rising. And when it comes in, all the castles we've been building on the beach are going to be washed away. And all that will be left of your entire life's work is a smooth stretch of sand like we were never there. Yeah, this is a painful book. And it's like the teacher is grabbing us by the back of the neck and forcing us to peer over the edge of the cliff into the abyss of despair. This is not how work was meant to be. God created the first humans for the joy of labor. God created Adam and gave him the strong helper Eve to name the animals, to tend, and to keep the garden, to actually extend the Garden of Eden into the wild world. And our first parents were given the incredible gift of work with joy and purpose. And we can see man and woman working in harmony with each other and with God's creation, teasing out all the wonderful possibilities latent in God's new world. And the best of all was they were working in companionship with God. And in the cool of the day, walking with him in the garden, sharing the fruit of their labors with their creator. And much of the wisdom literature, like Proverbs, talks about how we can live working with the grain of God's creation. This book, though, is a book about what life is like east of Eden after the fall. It's an extended meditation on the grim reality of living in a fallen world and working in a fallen world. And this unbearable situation that we all live in has been triggered by human sin. God created mankind upright, the teacher tells us in chapter 7, verse 29. But they have gone in search of many schemes.
As another prisoner told Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the Siberian Gulag, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. And now since that first sin, humanity lies under the judgment of God. And Adam and Eve stood there, as God told them in Genesis chapter 3, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Here's what the curse is after the fall. Work under the shadow of death. Truly God has laid a heavy burden on mankind. The days of joyful, rewarding work and the company of God, where everything flows smoothly under our fingers, those days are long over. And now all of our work, all of the work represented in this congregation is done under the curse. The ground resists us. God's reality pushes back against us. It's not cooperative. It produces thorns and thistles. And now we toil. We find ourselves toiling against the grain of reality, spending a life of drudgery, barely holding back the forces of chaos and disorder. Our lives of work can no longer be described as picking fruit in the cool of the garden. How wonderful would that be? But toiling under the sun, to use the teacher's phrase. East of Eden, we only eat our food by the sweat of our brow, eking out survival under a sweltering sun. And the worst part of all is that we toil as people who are alienated from God. And God is present in Ecclesiastes. This man is a faithful Israelite, but God feels quite distant in this book. And as those who suffer under the fall, we can no longer clearly perceive what is the point of my existence? What is the meaning of my work? And all we can see is vanity and despair from our very limited vantage point under the sun. And where human beings once at least had the possibility of immortality, now we only possess the certainty of death. All come from dust, and to dust all, re all return. Chapter 3, verse 20. Here's the ground which feeds us so reluctantly only to consume us in the end. And all of our lives end in a tragic waste, a tragic liquidation of human potential. I notice no one's smiling. This is a very depressing and grim book, and I'm not going to close in prayer right now as we book our tickets to Switzerland to get a lethal injection and end this, this thing. It is a depressing book. An honest look at the futility of life and work after the fall. And yes, there are these wonderful exhortations in the book to seize the day and find the joy in life and work where we can, but these are not solutions to the problem. They're just a kind of narcotic that enables us to endure all the days 
of our meaningless life. Luckily for us this afternoon, Ecclesiastes does not have the last word in Scripture because the fall is not the whole story. We're going to get to the good stuff, but it's important as Christians that we feel the weight of these things, remembering that all of us who've been redeemed by Jesus, we're still living in a fallen world, still toiling under the same sun as the teacher. Some of you might be familiar with the American painter Thomas Kincaid and his well-known uh, artistry of misty lighthouses and cottages glowing with an inner light. His paintings, they've been reproduced over 10 million times. And I think Kincaid's art is popular because it offers an escape from the harsh realities of life. And once an interviewer asked Kincaid how he could defend painting this wistful sentimentality, and his reply was, I like to portray a world without the fall. Kincaid's paintings are bad art because they don't reckon honestly with the world we actually live in. And Kincaid himself was an alcoholic who destroyed his life and his family. You'd never know that from his beautiful paintings. He should have known better, as we all should know better. We do not live in a world without the fall, much as we might wish it. Not even Christians. We still live east of Eden. The ground is still choked with thorns. And in our toil, we face the same grief and the same pain as all our neighbors around us. And in some ways, human work has gotten even more difficult and more pointless since the teacher's time. Tim Keller and Catherine Leary Alsdorf, in their book, Every Good Endeavor, a book on, on work as Christians, they point out the frustration of life in the modern workplace, where workers on a production line or in a sweatshop repeat the same mindless tasks over and over again, where other people are locked into low-paying service jobs that experience the same alienating disconnection from the fruit of their work. And even powerful people are working in enormous corporations whose size and complexity makes it difficult for them to even understand what their labor is producing. All of us who work, even those of us with relatively rewarding careers, we're going to experience grinding toil, wasted hours, deep frustration, heart-rending failure, and disturbing questions about whether any of this is even worth it in the end. So we don't escape the world of the teacher. We don't get to go somewhere else that is not under the sun. But the appearance of the gospel widens our horizons so that life under the sun is now life under the sun of righteousness who rises with healing in his wings. And you know, it's true, the author of Ecclesiastes, he was a wise man. He had perceptive things to say. But he did not know life 
under Christ. And when we turn from Ecclesiastes to the New Testament, we find there is a totally different spirit in these pages. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What a profound pairing of that verse beside this book of Ecclesiastes that proclaims vanity and meaninglessness. Paul is saying that in the Lord Jesus, our labor is not in vain, it's not pointless, it's not meaningless. And what is it that infuses Paul with with such joyful certainty? The verse I just read is the very last verse in the chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, that rings with the triumph of Christ's resurrection. And we really should have an enormous pipe organ here with all the stops pulled out as we go through that chapter and celebrate Jesus' victory over death in which all of us share this afternoon. Here's Jesus, the last and the final Adam, who's come down to earth to take the curse on himself. He did not arrive in a wonderful world without the fall, where everything is perfect, a lovely garden. Jesus entered a brutal, disorienting, painful wilderness. And as he died, he wore on his head a crown of thorns, the curse of the ground. Jesus came to destroy death and to free those who all their lives were held in the fear of death. The light shone in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. And Jesus emerges from the tomb victorious with the keys of death and the grave hanging from his belt. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile. Just one more aspect of life the teacher would have dismissed as utterly meaningless. But Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And all who believe in Jesus receive from him the gift of eternal life. And we share in the joyful hope of the resurrection at the end of history. And for Paul, and for all of us, that confident hope in the resurrection should utterly transform our daily work. We do not labor as people staring into the abyss of death. We labor as people who already share in the risen life of Jesus. And our work is not pointless, and it's not going to be wiped out and forgotten. We have a future in Christ. And therefore, Paul says, we should be always abounding in the work of the Lord. But we might ask as we look at that verse, what really counts as labor in the Lord? Is is it just Christian ministry like Paul the Apostle was doing? 
What about all of us who are toiling away every week in government or finance or communication or medicine or education or the arts or the home? Does that matter to God? Does that work actually matter to God? Or do really only pastors and missionaries count as kingdom workers? The gospel of Jesus shines over all of human life. And the leaven of the kingdom is meant to work itself out into every aspect of life under the sun. And somehow, through Jesus, even ordinary toil takes on new significance. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells the slaves in the church, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. That is remarkable. Here are these image bearers of God, these precious brothers and sisters who are trapped in a cruel and unjust system where they are legally defined as subhuman, living tools, as Aristotle famously defined a slave, and their labor is stolen from them. We might ask, how can your work possibly be meaningful if you are controlled, literally controlled, by someone else? And in Ephesians, Paul instructs them to offer up their work, however pointless, however demeaning it might seem, to offer up their work to Jesus in service to him. Slave or free, we have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. We belong wholly to him and to no one else. And now all of us are summoned to lift up our meaningless, pointless work and offer it to Christ as a holy sacrifice. Because whatever is offered to Jesus from a true heart will not fail to receive its reward. And somehow, through the strange economics of the kingdom, even the smallest thing done for Jesus, even a cup of cold water offered in his name, is somehow folded into the kingdom and included in what God is doing in the world. The Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf says that Through our hope in the resurrection, human beings contribute in their modest and broken way to God's new creation. Somehow, God chooses to include our ordinary work, our drudgery, our toil. If we offer it to Jesus, God is going to include that in his new creation. All things were created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. He is the Logos. He is the Word of God, and all the threads of reality meet in Him. If you want to ensure that your work is ultimately meaningless, disconnect it from Jesus, for nothing apart from Christ has any future. But anything we do choose to connect to Jesus 
by the Holy Spirit, however small, however mediocre, however mundane, and somehow transforms into a piece of the new Jerusalem. Now, of course, what matters to Jesus is very often at odds with what matters to the world. And our society enforces its values with status and money and rewards the kind of work that it deems to be significant. And it's very tempting for us as Christians to be seduced by this, to use our work to seek validation from other people instead of seeking the only praise that matters, and that is hearing Jesus saying to us at the last day, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, in a way, what we do together every Sunday afternoon for an hour and a half is a kind of worship rehearsal. Our worship rehearsal isn't just on Thursday nights at our apartment. It's, it's here together because we're being renewed as we gather here and sent out for our real worship, our real liturgy, which is offering our entire lives to God, our bodies as a living sacrifice, as our reasonable act of worship. Our work is meant to be worship. An expression of our adoration of God as we offer everything we do to the one who contains all purpose and all meaning in himself. Today is Sunday, and Monday is coming. Tomorrow we begin, once again, the other six days. And I want to invite you tomorrow, before you sit down at your desk and open your laptop or whatever you do to begin your day at 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning, stop and remember that you are doing priestly work. Your cubicle is your temple. You are clothed in white. And you can take a moment to pray and consecrate your work to God to lay your hands on it and declare that through Christ, what you are doing is a holy thing because you are a holy person offering it to a holy God. The book of Zechariah at the very end has this wonderful vision in the coming day of the Lord when all things will be holy, even the bells on the horses, even the pots and the pans will have the word holy to the Lord written on them. And you and I have been redeemed as royal priests, called to the great task of offering up the praises of all creation to the Lord. And we need to ask for the help of the Holy Spirit to live out the values of the kingdom wherever God has placed us, setting our eyes on the new creation that Jesus has secured through his resurrection from the dead, which gives all our work meaning and purpose. All of life and all of time and all of work finds its meaning in Jesus. Life is not futility. Our work is not vanity because we know Jesus. And our labor in the Lord and only in the Lord 
is not in vain. So now let's bow our heads and consecrate ourselves to the Lord as his workers. O Lord, unless you build the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless you watch over the city, This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.